welcome to the Marathon Medic podcast. I'm your host, Amy Bolsh, a doctor and running coach with an interest in sports and exercise medicine. These podcast episodes are all about physical activity, exercise and health, and today I'm joined by Dr. Rebecca Robinson. Rebecca is a consultant in sport and exercise medicine with specific interests in exercise oncology and female athlete health. She's also an elite marathoner herself. We're discussing the role of exercise in cancer prevention and treatment, how we can promote the role of exercise medicine across the healthcare system, and we also touch on returning to sport after COVID-19 infection. Hi Rebecca, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Would you mind just starting us off by introducing yourself? Hi Amy, thank you very much for inviting me. My name's Dr Rebecca Robinson and I am a consultant in sport and exercise medicine. I trained in that specialty in Sheffield and I currently work with the English Institute of Sport based in Sheffield and also with a clinic called Marlebone Health Group which is based in London and that's part of my role also doing some work remotely. Perfect and we're going to um, learn a bit more about your your journey into sports and exercise medicine and and what that role involves but before we do that I just wanted to ask you about your running background as well because uh, you you are an amazing runner and uh, ran for Team GB is that right? Yeah, it's had, thank you. It's had, it's had good moments and it's had some challenging moments. Um, yeah, I've always just run um, something I really enjoy doing and probably don't have many skills for any other types of sports as periods off running have shown me. But um, I remember when I applied for specialty training, I actually had the London Marathon that weekend and I was kind of terrified of both the interview and the race. And they'd obviously clocked I was a runner for my CV. So they asked me what would happen if like someone collapsed in the marathon. I don't really want to think about, <laughs> about that. But um yeah, I was lucky, really. I had the opportunity to run for GB and in the road and on the mountains. Um, and it was all around the time of being a junior doctor and coming to the training programme. So it's kind of been a bit of a parallel theme, which has been great. Um, I've had some excellent colleagues who've had to like treat me when I've been injured as well. Um, I just had like a year, nearly two years off with a hamstring injury, which was fascinating because it was really challenging. I wouldn't recommend getting injured for it, but it does help to know what it feels like. And so I'm just really enjoying being able to get back um, into running now. As I say, I had to develop some rehab skills. So again, when I'm prescribing it for patients, I'm thinking, yeah, sometimes that's hard. But yeah, it's been fun to balance both, really. Do you find that in your work, you tend to promote running more than other sports or you enjoy working with runners more or you kind of open to all the all the sports? Do you know, I would say not. I love running. And sometimes I say, oh, don't start running because it's when you get injured, you know, you think, oh, gosh, you know, it's a very relentless sport. I think you've just got to find what you love. It's just the sport that is just part of what I do and what I really enjoy. I could find that from other things. And I would say to athletes, I think that's the main thing I do try to say is make sure that like your sport is not the answer to your happiness, because you can get some very unhappy athletes when they can't do their sport at all levels because they're kind of relying on it so I think it's important to have it as part of what you do but if it's everything that you do it's like you can't always say that in one consultation look for the balance of what you're doing overall but I think it can bring a lot to people doing sport just being involved and they there is such a range as I said it's literally because I'm not a particularly adaptable athlete I'm you know I love some other things like swimming and cycling but I really don't think I could compete in them but when you see people find that love for going on a bike or going to pilates or just going out in the hills it's it's that essence of being involved and again some of my really inactive patients where it's never been part of their life when they're starting off being physically active it's just important to find out that thing and sometimes I find that some patients who've maybe just started out walking they'll find the same motivation and the same reason to get out the door just something about it when they've got into it which is what I really try and help people to get to would be the aim. 
And when did you decide that sports medicine was the was the pathway that you wanted to choose? Because I think, especially during medical school, for me, it wasn't really a specialty that was um, encouraged. Was it because you were really into your sport and your running or did you find it through through other pathways? actual reason is still the area that I'm trying to build the most. The actual reason was really more around the exercise medicine. I guess when I'd been a student and more on placements and kind of coming to the junior doctor years, it's not always a direct correlation, but it did seem to be that when you had patients in who were less frail and more kind of resilient versus those who were very frail, there did tend to be a better outcome, you know, if not in the short term and the longer term. And seeing that kind of inequality and thinking, what is this? That's what really got me interested. And when I kind of really try and refine, because we'll probably talk about some of the areas in exercise medicine as well, they're still on the builds in terms of hard to commission, hard to just get the momentum, but it's really coming. But sometimes I just think back to like those wards and thinking the really frail patients, what if everyone's going to be at frail at some point? At some point, there will be maybe a decompensation, sadly, and we just have to try our best to get people as healthy as we can to tolerate the treatments that they can but actually treatments are advancing and frailty is increasing so there's more reason I guess to focus on that area that I first felt had that need of exercise medicine but what's fascinating is that the parallels right there in sport so yeah I was kind of well sport's sort of interesting and I was involved in it but I didn't have it as you know the area I was most interested in until I started working in it and then I realized in what it takes to get people to like a major games, that sort of area too. But for example, there was a really interesting paper um, this year, actually, but it was looking at muscle and neuron regrowth, basically, in the much, much older population than people in their like 80s and 90s. And this all came from masters athletes. So these people that you'll see sometimes making headlines because they're like 90, 100 doing sports. But that science, that development is directly translatable into general medicine and when we look at our frail um, more elderly population you know it's a case of being able to say now actually do you know what you can help to rebuild muscle and strength into your 80s and beyond so it's that parallel and that bridge that I guess has got me still um, really interested in in the whole area so it's, it's a bit of a journey really but that's how it started. When you're working with older patients those with frailty or long-term conditions what are the main barriers that you come up against or the misconceptions that, that you might face when you're trying to encourage these individuals to exercise? I think there's tons of misconceptions that people just won't or they can't or things I think you really have to find out what that person's motivation is and I think sometimes it's it's kind of fear. And like, even those of us that are younger, sometimes I, you know, I'll do something and we have, oh, I can't do that. And I think when people have lost quite a lot, trying to work out how to get back there is really, really hard. Um, unfortunately, in the population that really need to be physically active, there's a lot of barriers, unfortunately, in this, these times, socioeconomic barriers. You know, I've worked with the group in Sheffield where they had like free gym access, but it was getting to the gym. The bus cost £3.50. It was at a time when they're meant to be looking after either older or younger relatives and just about coping on their own. So sometimes it's the reality of well, how do I fit that into my life? And I think, you know, me coming from a rural area like the Lake District, which sounds wonderful, and it is if you're active, but it's quite rural and remote if you're not. Um, and obviously then the other side of that is the barriers in like inner cities and safety. It's just trying to make the individual's case for what, what will meet them halfway can you find a friend to exercise with if you can get into your community what facilities are there that you know does an app work for you because some of my older patients having say a remote video consult is tricky but they'll have a phone consult but there's maybe like some limitations there we're trying to look at their range of movement if they can sit to stand but I think it's really about trying to work out all those barriers what are the reasons that you can't be active and then start to implement the little changes that give people confidence. 
And you mentioned kind of earlier on that exercise medicine obviously is a growing field, which is a really good thing. But at the moment, there's definitely areas where, you know, there's there's no exercise medicine. Um, and obviously these patients across the NHS need this kind of input with getting more active. So it relies on other members of the MDT and, and GPs and other healthcare professionals trying to encourage patients to do this. What do you think needs to be done to try and facilitate that? Because I think it can be quite daunting as, say, um, someone in primary care or GP making exercise recommendations for people with long-term conditions because we're often not taught that and it can balancing that risk is quite tricky and knowing knowing what to advise can be quite tricky as well yeah it's a very very good point and I think as a specialty we cannot be insular and inward looking we can't say oh you know we know all these things just let's do them um it isn't always necessary to have an exercise medical consultant to prescribe exercise for example it may not even be necessary for someone to get a medical appointment so for those that are lower risk getting active and helping to signpost people so like saying within the community in different types of um community it can be about finding you know is there a community leader in sheffield in one group we had people who had a community leader who was very involved maybe knock on doors and get people active or is it something that people want to do online are there facilities people can go to but in those facilities we're looking for people who are appropriately trained so if someone has complex health conditions it might be like a level four personal trainer that can manage those for example i know we're going to talk a bit more about cancer and exercise but for example can rehab is a very well accredited course for people to work with people with complex areas of need around cancer and increasingly there's a brilliant allied health professional network so another example is prehab for cancer which is a fantastic movement in manchester which is mostly ahp led it's surgeons and anaesthetists behind it as well because it was a prehab before surgery initiative at first but we've got in there there are attrition there's occupational therapy there's physiotherapy however i guess one of the areas i'm really interested in is those with really complex need who would potentially miss out on some of the services that are accessible because it's just there's too many things but I, I'm quite keen on there not being those barriers so I think at that level sometimes a deep dive around a medical consultation like we do in sport can be very helpful and then it's a case of me working with the team not necessarily and ideally not bringing the patient back multiple times to a doctor but being involved in that team and that's where I like the parallel from sport because if we can bring that MDT around a patient we might only need to use two or three members who the GP can find or people in the community that are running a service can accessibly find and then keeping that patient at the centre if they need to be tiered up toward more specialist investigations for a short period of time that will happen rather than them be debarred from being active really so a bit of a complex answer really there but I think it's all about the team using all those skills we can but my argument would be for it that we avoid people going into hospital if we just invest in that team a little bit. In terms of the research about exercise during these conditions, so you, you touched on cancer there, but are there any areas where actually we just don't know enough? Are there any medical conditions that, you know, we, we don't have enough research or there's a, there's a big research gap that still makes it a bit tricky to, to prescribe exercise in that population group? I think the good thing in a lot of the areas such as cardiovascular disease, such as cancer, is there is a lot of research right now. Problem with exercise is it's not a medication, so it hasn't had the same development as a drug would have um, and the same funding as a drug would have. And also there's many, many different types of exercise and obviously many, many different types of condition, even within a set of conditions such as cancer, for example. Um, so that can limit sometimes the quality of the evidence. Moving Medicine was a really good initiative that the Faculty of Sports Medicine ran from 2018. It's still going now with a new iteration. But in that, we looked through all the evidence of non-communicable 
well, conditions. So looking at about, I think, I'll probably get this slightly wrong, but there's about 10 to 12 disease groups on there right now and it's expanding. But looking at the evidence, so we really do have enough to say that exercise is not going to harm and is likely to help. But what we don't know yet are the absolutes. So for example, in cancer, we cannot say significantly how big that risk reduction would be. But I think because we know it's safe and we know it is good and it can redress a lot of other things like muscle loss and the secondary conditions that people say can develop after a long-term condition, which might be an increased risk of heart disease in cancer, for example, we can say, well, let's get on and support you to exercise because hopefully soon we will know better. And we need to translate some of those trials into actual patients doing it because we can move forward with them before we know the absolutes, but it's still a developing area literally in all of exercise medicine, I think. Yeah, moving medicine is such a useful resource. Um, and I've spent the last year working in primary care and it's really nice to be able to have that evidence base and actually just send it out to patients as well. So you can almost justify what, what you're explaining to them. Um, you've touched on your work with exercising cancer. Would you mind just expanding on that and sharing what work you've been doing? I think this is just an area that, again, coming from that frail patient, potentially with cancer and their journey that's the area that really interests me. And I think in terms of it being a very broad specialty, it's been an interesting journey so far because lots has happened in that sphere. For me in 20, might get this right, 2015, um, I went on one of the British Association of Sports and Exercise Medicine, BASM Travelling Fellowships. And that was out to Philadelphia where Catherine Smith, who is just the past president of the American College of Sports Medicine at the time, wasn't. She was a professor but in um exercise physiology in University of Pennsylvania and she was brilliant because she let me see everything from the developmental science like the bench to bedside so the kind of actual translational medical science right up to the patients participating and these patients were working in breast cancer and lymphedema which was one of the papers that had recently been published about how good exercise actually is done correctly and with support for the affected limb so that was a really good introduction to almost a subspecialty at which time I remember asking her, you know, gosh, I need to do the research. And I am hopefully being involved in more and more research. But she said also there is a need for that MDT for clinicians. The exercise physiologists have a really significant role in building that evidence. Came back from there and completed my training in 2016. Then I was really lucky to have a role that we kind of built as a bit of a hybrid research and clinical role at Western Park, the cancer hospital in Sheffield. So I was working in lung cancer and really working very much on the shop floor in terms of the clinics and managing patients. And that was fascinating because no one had the expectation around exercise. It was just interesting to learn from that population of who most had significant comorbidities and was very unwell, like what their day-to-day activity levels were like, how what their aims and ambitions were and you know there were new therapies as there are now like immunotherapies coming in all of the time so that was a period of two years and then in the last couple of years of course COVID has come along and changed quite a few things but in that time I'm still working with a team in terms of a bid to try and get an exercise medicine service going in the north of England which would be a multidisciplinary team um, and all the while though working with patients with cancer so with that team we've had a few that have you know, the time for them to be treated and have exercise medicine is now. So we found ways of, you know, seeing them with all good governance, but um, trying to innovatively manage to see them before that is in place. And, you know, working with some of those patients in private practice, which is a difficult balance because it's accessible to those who can access it. But it's very, very important to have that parity and make sure that no one's actually missing out. And we know that those at the most need are really the ones who actually need the most rehab. But it's definitely continued as a good journey learning learning from those patients and yeah they've helped shape some of those stories just what we need to do going forward 
What does the research um, support in terms of kind of the best time to intervene with with cancer? Is that prehab period really important? Is it about getting them to exercise during their chemotherapy or is it most important afterwards? Or I suppose a combination of of all three. Yeah, I mean, it could be like a really long, but it's, it's a really, really good question. I think the evidence is there all through. So the evidence is there for prehab and the evidence is there for during, for example, chemo, potentially less, although there will be some um, increasingly coming out now that there's more immunotherapies because that can be a longer term treatment cycle, people being on and off treatment for longer. And certainly afterwards, um, sometimes the long term outcomes are less, they can be followed up really well, but sometimes there are lots of different types of late effects, for example, what has happened to that person's health or the good news is that they potentially have had their cancer over controlled or in remission but it's hard to track the outcomes and lots of them have lots of different needs after the treatments than they did before. There was, there was a big move towards prehab, which was brilliant. It was kind of spearheaded by Macmillan and that's about probably about five or six years ago now. Um, but that moved forward brilliantly with some centers. So for example, prehab for cancer um, was one of those where really surgery and anesthesia worked with the teams to say, gosh, we need to get people more fit before they have their surgery and that may help their cancer. So we don't really know in hard and fast terms if the cancer regresses with exercise. It's an area that is being studied for sure in exercise oncology, but we do know that it can increase people's fitness before surgery, which is really important. And again, through during treatment in terms of chemotherapy, people do appear to tolerate their treatment well. A lot of people cannot tolerate their full treatment, which is a big factor, of course, in outcomes. So during treatment, in terms of tolerating the treatment, what it does to the tumour looks hopeful, but we don't have the high quality evidence yet. But also, again, in terms of people's strength, people's aerobic function, but also importantly, quality of life, you know, in terms of impact on mental health, which is a huge area that is impacted by cancer. And then again, afterwards, I think it's crucially important that people will be moving forward at all stages of their life um, after a cancer diagnosis. So there is the evidence all the way through. The biggest move has been through prehab right now due to that initial work from about 2016 with Macmillan. But for me, those other areas are all to, to go for in terms of improving the access. And I suppose fatigue is such an issue as well, I guess, again, through the whole process, but particularly after treatment and I think exercise can be such a useful tool in terms of managing that fatigue uh, if if it's done in a controlled way. Yeah that's one area that's very interesting because people feel fatigued and they don't obviously want to exert themselves more and I think what's also impactful is friends and family trying to help and support so you know you must rest Um, and that narrative is really strong. Um, Actually there was a brilliant piece of work from about 2018 that showed that actually exercise did not increase fatigue and often helped it Um, And I think just that reassurance for people, they're not making things worse. And then you can help people to pace if they're having, for example, chemotherapy. There might well be days, but they'll get to recognize themselves when they really do need to rest. But actually being more active on the days that they can can help the overall management. And I think some other things like, for example, radiotherapy, it has this kind of double hit. People get tired during it. But the lag phase afterwards, people say, oh, should I not have felt better by now? But just from what we know about radiotherapy, it can take quite a long time afterwards but again it's trying to it's trying to pace people and occasionally I do have to actually hold people back so people that have been quite keen on being active it's a case not holding them back so much but saying look this is a different phase for you right now it you know people can be worried that they don't get the same what's on the bike or they're not going at the same pace in the park run but it's all and it's hard but trying to reframe that as and this is a part of their recovery now and just to to pace it and just talking about park run and, and 5Ks, would you mind just explaining a little bit about 5K your way? Because I believe that's a 
kind of 5k specific to um, cancer patients set up by Lucy Gossage, I think. Yeah, set up by Lucy Gossage and um, Gemma Hillier Moses, who are two absolute superstars. Um, so Lucy is an oncologist, but she was also, um, what's her butt? And she's also been um, an Ironman champion before she took up a consultant post. Gemma ha- has set up Move as a charity. She's an elite athlete. She also coaches. She had experience with cancer in her 20s and the two of them together have launched this amazing charity called Move which is about rehabilitation around cancer but they have just set up Parkrun um it's only Parkrun's only kind of charity affiliated movement called 5k your way and it began in Nottingham and I think there's about 40 around the country now and every last Saturday of the month there are ambassadors so myself and a couple in Sheffield go to one of um, Encliffe Park in Sheffield and around the country there'll be 40 or 50 people in blue t-shirts and patients and also health professionals and also relatives very much encouraged to come and it's 5k your way so people will either run it or they might walk it or they might walk half of it and it's great because people I've had people come who have never done never never run before and they just want to walk around it um had a patient recently who's in the middle of treatment and thought he couldn't actually run it like he was going to do half he was on a couch to 5k but he managed to do it and it was just great for him and his family really enjoyed it too it's absolutely brilliant um, and really powerful I think we need some more things like that in terms of different sports and different activities so it really shows how good an initiative like part running can be but and of course we need to make things the same and people might want to exercise on their own or they might want it not to be illness specific for example but just having someone there for me um, I've always been a club runner, you know, um, and I've always had that community around me. And I guess part one brings that to people that maybe potentially weren't in a club. It really has got a community to it. And within that 5 k way can potentially fill that same purpose. So it's a really great movement. And yeah, we need more similar to that for sure. Yeah, definitely. I think the nice thing about park run as well is there's the chance to volunteer or spectate. So if you are feeling a bit apprehensive about turning up, you know, in those initial weeks, if you don't want to do anything, you can just, you can just watch. And there is definitely the community aspect as well as the physical activity aspect. Absolutely. I think I'm one of those annoying runners that's always trying to get a park run time to the degree I don't wear a watch anymore. <laughs> just, come on, just run it. But um, 5 is always brilliant because you never know where you're going to be in the pack. You might be round at the back with somebody who tentatively wants to walk. You might actually be watching it. Most times you're in the middle somewhere with somebody who thought that they couldn't go so fast and has a goes and thing but it's um yeah I think with that one I don't know but I think the volunteers take an awful lot um away from that it's really quite empowering for us so we can't really um talk about sports medicine as well without talking about covid which has obviously dominated a lot of sports medicine over the last couple of years um so I had a few covid specific questions but I guess my first one just um to finish in terms of talking about exercise and cancer how has covid affected your therapies and, and treatments for people with cancer and trying to get them more active? Have you noticed more more barriers or are people more encouraged to become physically active because of the, I guess, wake up call that, that COVID has given us in terms of how important our, our lifestyle and behaviours are? It's a great question. I'm afraid it's probably quite a complex answer. So I guess the best way for me to describe it is potentially in terms of timelines of what happened. Like with lockdown, 5k away for example they started doing everything remotely and galvanized it quite fast that was the first time that anyone convinced me to go on any kind of podcast because it was 5k away I was like yeah fine <laughs> that'll be that'll be fine and of course it was important because we were just trying to bring people home-based exercise and I think it did open up a world like for example I do see quite a lot of people remotely but for me that means that I can see someone in the south of Cumbria um or they might be in Manchester or they might be in London 
Whereas the reality at the moment with trying to make sure that services evolve is hard because the NHS under a lot of pressure, you know, potentially this hasn't quite happened yet, but the potential of having more satellite clinics from one base so that we're all, we've got an MDT that is providing the same aims and has got the same best practice around it, but potentially can reach out to people that maybe can be active in their community, or you can see how they're getting on at home, or you can just touch base and make sure that they're on track. For me, that has opened up a lot of possibilities. I haven't yet quite refined how exactly we deliver it, but I think it has changed some of the directions in healthcare. And I think some of that really could be harnessed, which is exciting. In other terms, there have been a lot more pressures on clinics, for example. So the ideas of keeping people active or making sure that things aren't decommissioned, especially at the moment where the economic side of things is not looking so bright, is an ongoing challenge. And yet, for example, models like prehab for cancer in Manchester has succeeded and grown and is still growing, despite the fact it launched perilously close to COVID. So I think things are still being done, but it has shown that it's really, really important. And I think if anything, COVID has opened up that area of acknowledging that rehab can be hard and complex and that those of us in exercise medicine and rehab medicine and other branches of medicine probably need to work together quite closely to make sure that patients make it healthily through that period and feel supported as well. I'm sure for patients with cancer or other long-term health conditions as well, for some of them that at least having the option to be remote must be quite useful because if they're, you know, fatigued, like we've said, or they're immunocompromised, they might not want to come back to hospital. So I think having at least an option to, to do things remotely in some cases must be quite beneficial from the patient perspective. Yeah, I hope so. It's hard to, because what you've got to do, I think, is balance, you know, what, what seems best for the patient and what's best for the clinician in terms of what we assume for the patient sometimes. It might be different, but um, but when you know, we can, always checking which is best for the patient. But I think you're really right in terms of some patients, if they're 10 minutes of the day being active, goes out the window because they've just driven 60 miles or more to a centre, then it's best to have that remotely. You know, if it's the one time that they get to be active, actually, do they come to a hospital or is there something much more local that they could do? But I think one of the areas around exercise medicine that is deliverable in terms of um, cancer and rehabilitation is you often know the medical history. Like if someone has a specific MSK injury, you may well need to examine it. But often if, if it's a case of knowing, for example, where a bony metastasis is and knowing what the symptoms are, you might either be working with a physio who's actually face to face with them in the case that you are remote and knows that range, that kind of thing. And you can still risk stratify. So I think it's a case of really working up that best practice, making sure that it's safe, but working with that patient to find out what you can do next and if it is remote just making sure that they're content with the plan and it feels safe to them but you can also check in potentially a little bit more regularly. In terms of the athletes that you're you're seeing in clinic that possibly don't have any other long-term conditions but have had COVID and are trying to return to exercise post-COVID um, are you still seeing lots of patients in that position and, and what are their main symptoms or, or difficulties they're having when they're returning to sport? Yeah there's, I mean there's been a spectrum it's been a huge learning curve I think the there's not been many great things to report about COVID, but I think one of the best things for me has been remembering to listen to the patient um, because, you know, walking into COVID and post-COVID and long COVID, um, it's been one of the real times of medicine you've got to genuinely say, I don't know. I don't know what the best therapies are. They're not out there yet. I don't know what this is. I don't know what it's going to do. But, you know, with the hope and with the genuine, the genuine reassurance that I've seen a lot of people recover, I think I'm still seeing some patients with long COVID in terms of the initial symptoms that were talked about the most like fatigue but some people have had really odd unusual one-off symptoms and it does seem to be an area where 
that whole holistic balance, I'm sure there is something going on in terms of the autonomic nervous system. There's something potentially going on in the mitochondria. We still have all this research that is evolving. And that's really working with the patients because sometimes some of my patients will have the opportunity to go on a trial. And it's helping to weigh up, now, how is this trial designed? Does it look good? Is it something that we can safely move forward with? But in terms of the areas outside of the actual medical condition, it really is a bit like athletes where in terms of when they get into an under-recovery or overtraining, again, a bit of an unexplained fatigue syndrome, we look at all the other aspects of life as well, the stress that they're under in terms of life or, or work. And we can't always completely take this away, but I think it really does need a holistic approach to to the support looking at mental health as well and physical activity so the active ones um of course they want to get back to physical activity and it's a really hard barrier because we know that we just can't push people through you know obviously graded exercise isn't something that we use now for chronic fatigue but trying to help people work with the amount of energy they've got and i sometimes use a bit of a traffic light system to sort of say well look if this is a red and it's really going to sap your energy you really think carefully about how long that will impact you but if it's an amber you know like an an extra bit of activity for the day but it's not going to set you back after a couple of days then we know that that might be there and we think around it if it's a green you get to the point where you can do a 20 minute walk even if you used to do a 10 mile run but if you can get a 20 minute walk done and you feel just the same just as stable if not better the next day then we look to keep that going for a bit and slowly increase it it can be very frustrating very very hard for athletes but i think having again having a team around someone can just connect that can be very helpful I think what I've seen potentially a little bit more of recently is a lot of the restrictions around being active and competing as well after COVID have altered um, in elite sport. They've kind of increased quite a lot, I think, and I'm not sure, but I think I'm seeing quite a lot of people who almost have this under recovery as opposed to long COVID. So, for example, they'll have had COVID and maybe taken, say they've taken a week off, but then got back into it and then felt kind of okay, ramped it up into high intensity and maybe then either tested that with a high intensity session or a race. And over a period of time, just not quite coming back to baseline. So maybe having that post-race fatigue, but it not settling. And when they want to build again, it's been really hard. So I think this might be a really interesting area that falls a bit into like the heavy end of an under-recovery syndrome. Still so much to learn and research on that. But again, could be that some of those symptoms that those pushing themselves the most, like the athletes are experiencing, could teach us about the whole population that are struggling after this condition because there's quite clear guidelines isn't there about return to sport um and i i think it was possibly designed initially for athletes but it applies to the general public as well with the graduated return over a period of of many many weeks but i I suppose i had two questions about that one was um obviously since that's come out we've learned so much more and the way that we're living with covid has changed quite significantly and many of us have been vaccinated multiple times so are those guidelines still relevant should they should they be updated and then also we're seeing different variants of COVID. So again, should the guidelines be almost evolving to to match the kind of new symptoms um, of COVID that we're experiencing as each variant kind of passes through the population? Initially, yes, there were strict guidelines really internationally and all of us were pretty much on the same page with that. The ones in the UK were led by some of the respiratory specialists and cardiologists. The reason there was there was a lot of fear that COVID would be very pro-thrombotic, would we end up with significant serious conditions in the heart and lungs after COVID in terms of the exercising population already pushing themselves very hard. The good news is that that has not been seen significantly in studies, but that initial very, very harsh, got to stop for 10 days, got to go very easy for another seven and then get back into it over a period of weeks. It really took up the month. That was revised. That was revised in light of the changes after COVID appearing to become more mild for those that are vaccinated 
And also, like, you know, really returning people to sport, do we have to be that hardline or can we go forward a bit faster? Will it be safe? And I worked with the English Institute of Sport, part of the home country's sports advice in 2021, looking at that. And we did get to a point where there were so many variables around it that it became hard to produce a guideline for all. But it was reduced, really, so that people could get back into activity. And I think you've probably seen in like the recent, for example, Commonwealth Games, some of the athletes who'd had COVID quite recently, obviously they had to be tested, but they were back to high-level competition quite quick. And when I was working with sports tours, um, the Olympics, it was in 2021, um, we were working to get people back as fast as we could, as healthy, making sure that they were you know, able to perform at that level. But I think it really is quite individual. In an elite sport, people are really monitored. They've got a whole team around them, the docs, the physiologists, especially, and the whole physiotherapy team, nutrition, everything can be looked at. Whereas individuals exercising, it can be a lot, lot harder. And, you know, if you fit enough to not be needing a GP for a general medical issue, but just can't go back to sport, it can be quite hard to get that guidance. So I think even though we can return people and some people are asymptomatic and some people get back really quickly, I do still think it has a hit. So it's kind of respecting that much more than a normal cold, just to kind of say, well, I've got back off, the symptoms are gone. And then let's just look at this fatigue. If I'm getting really quite fatigued after a ride or a run, just keep it at that or bring it back down. Just don't make that deficit bigger because the body kind of responds and it will be on a kind of autonomic level and a recognition of that stress type level so oh, I'm not ready for this yet and that's what can help to lead really to an under recovery and the next time we want to go the body's kind of just saying can you listen to me and just hold back a little bit so I think that message for elite athletes can sometimes be helpful just to try and hold back work with a good coach if they need a medic then that's what we're also here for. I guess at an amateur athlete level as well although um say someone like me who who enjoys running but obviously I, I don't have a coach I don't have medical input I guess you know the, the benefit of of the modern technology is that many of us have heart rate monitors and watches or, or whoops for example and using that technology and maybe even keeping a symptom diary is useful so that we can kind of grade our own response and make sure that we're not overdoing it and take a bit of a bird's eye view ourselves and, and think about our own recovery and obviously seek seek medical help if, if, if we yeah. have you know concerning symptoms but otherwise just being really cautious and monitoring it ourselves might be useful really relevant yeah and I mean the irony is some of the athletes I've worked with like I work with boxing and canoeing and um they don't always have heart rate monitors because it's not relevant um but really don't have many amateur up to elite level runners or cyclists that are athletes who don't and I think it's really useful for trying to track that heart rate variable. So I guess part of me sometimes wonders we never used to have that you know, people would probably go off how they felt in terms of recovery, but it certainly is a useful tool to know that that's coming back into line and it can be a really good way to help people to rein things back in. But maybe there is a bit of a need for us to push out there in terms of, I don't know where the best place is. It might even be with some of the apps and some of the technology firms like the Garmin's and the Strava's to say, you know, little adverts saying, look, if you're feeling like this, this is time to rein back in. But yeah, I think helping people to get that knowledge of themselves and how their body feels is really key just to help pull it back in because we all are guilty of getting over enthusiastic and push, pushing it but sometimes it can be nervous and thinking maybe I can't get back yeah having a little bit of support or getting to know your own body is as you say is, is the best it's really difficult isn't it because I think uh kind of anxiety and, and worrying about these things gives a lot of the symptoms that we worry about in covid so you know chest tightness feeling slightly breathless um mm. so it, it can be difficult to unpick what's a true symptom and what's I guess your brain kind of over, overthinking things yeah. 
I agree. And I think sometimes that's where, you know, in the NHS, we, you know, we don't want to like overuse resources and scan everything and test everything. But I do think in this kind of domain of the athlete and COVID and recovery, and sometimes in other areas, if, if things have been like approached sensibly and we're trying to get back and some things are still not adding up, it is wise to get that opinion so like I guess I've seen patients sometimes and neither of us know you know what is this chest pain we're gonna we can't just guess that it might be musculoskeletal because there is a lot of actually musculoskeletal chest pain a lot of kind of thoracic tightness and breathing dysfunction after COVID for sure but in case of just getting some sensible checks done like for example an ECG potentially an echo in some people just working that up to make sure what it isn't and then moving forward confidently because then we can help people with the breathing rehabilitation physios can often be brilliant with that and looking at kind of mobility and function and also regaining what people have lost after a period of months you know it's like actually feeling unfit there's that but there's also knowing especially if it's been say like COVID and it's been more than a few months it takes a long time to get back so just helping people move forward sometimes we do need that little bit of insight from some investigations yeah definitely well thank you thank you so much for um speaking with me that's all been really interesting are there any final comments you want to make either to kind of general public that are listening or to other medics who might be interested in exercise medicine well thank you very much it's been fun talking about all those areas um i think for athletes generally it really is we're here for helping and supporting and you can find exercise medicine on the nhs um there are lots of ways to be supported with that. And if, if things aren't quite going right, you've got aims and ambitions, it is an important area because it'll keep you fit and healthy. But I think for exercise professionals as well, I think we do work really well with different professionals, but it is an area again where we can hopefully collaborate. And I think one of the big aims of our specialty is taking that burden of ill health partly off the shoulders of the NHS. So some of the, our colleagues and specialties can deliver medications and treatments, but we can help to keep those patients strong and potentially quite you know, positive and enjoying a sport as well ideally perfect thank you so much for speaking with me that's been a pleasure thank you a huge thanks to dr rebecca robinson for joining me on this episode of the podcast if you enjoyed this episode please do share it and give it a rating and do get in touch if there's topics or guests who you'd like to see on a future episode if you'd like to hear more from me then you can head to marathonmedic.com where you'll find more podcast episodes blog posts and coaching information you can also find me on instagram by searching marathon medic thanks so much for listening 